We've been talking about grace, have we not? Isn't that a worthy topic for discussion? Meditating on, cherishing. We've been talking about growing in grace and then uh, the marks of a gracious church. How do we know that we're a gracious church? How, can we, do we just say we are? Or are we, in fact, truly a gracious church? And if so, can we measure it? Can we determine it? Are there some objective criteria uh, whereby we can say, yes, these things are in evidence in the life of our church? Hence, we are a gracious church. So we've got to think along these lines and be willing to evaluate, um, look at our lives individually as well as a congregation and say, are we an obstacle to God's grace or are we truly a vessel, a vehicle of God's grace to one another and to this uh, fallen and devastated world? They need God's grace. Now, we started off a couple weeks ago about talking about what it means for each of us to grow in God's grace. Now, beloved, remember, if you and I individually are not learning to grow in God's grace, then guess what? We're not going to have a gracious church, right? So it's got to start with each one of us, and each one of us have got to begin to, to engage the reality of growing in His grace, and we talked some about that a few weeks ago. And then we began to talk about the things that are characteristic of a of a grace-filled church. Do you remember what those characteristics are? What's the first one? A grace-filled church is marked first how? They are what kind of people? Accepted people. They know they're accepted. Have you had opportunity these past couple weeks to rehearse that reality for yourself? Have you found yourself in a position where you're, you're in an argument, you're being put down, someone is glaring at you, you're tempted to put on a mask, to be something that, other than what you really are. You're feeling intimidated and nervous and scared. Find yourself in that position? Probably, if you're like me. You know, you've had several occasions uh, these past few weeks. And how wonderful it is to take a moment to step back from that situation for just a moment and say, wait a minute, I'm accepted. God accepts me just the way I am. How wonderful that is in the context of marriages, huh? When husbands or wives are going at each other, telling each other off, giving each other what for, pointing out each other's faults, telling each other where they ought to change. Has that gone on this week in anybody's lives? Yeah, Christian marriages. That even happens in Christian marriages. And how nice it is to step back and say, oh God, thank you that you accept me. Now the stuff the person may be saying is true and you need to hear it. But boy, how nice it is to hear in the context of a sense of being truly accepted just like you are. Because that frees you up. You don't get defensive then, huh? So a a grace-filled church, first of all, is a group of people who are learning what it means to truly be accepted, accepted by God. When you stand back and you think and you contemplate and you understand that the God of the universe accepts you, he accepts you just like you are, with all the faults, with all the failures, with all your idiosyncrasies and oddities, he accepts you. How wonderfully freeing that is. And that frees you, first of all, to be accepting. When you begin to relate and understand and grasp the reality, when God's grace so penetrates your mind and so grabs hold of your heart, that you know that you're accepted. I mean, you see all your faults, don't you? You know what's going on inside you. In spite of all that, God accepts you. How wonderful it is and how freeing it is. Now you know, and you see other people's faults, you can accept them. If God accepts me, I can accept you. And so the first mark, the first characteristic of a grace-filled church is that they are a people who are accepted and accepting. Not condemning and not condemned. They're accepted and they're accepting. Next, what's the second mark? Do you remember that? Because they're accepted, they're in an environment in which they can be what? Open and honest. Oh, how we need that in the church, don't we? We don't need a whole bunch of hypocrites saying one thing and doing another. We need people who are open and honest. We need people who, when they sin, they confess it. They're truthful. We need people who, when they're hurting, they're able and willing to say, I need help. I had a 
young person come to me this morning at the 8 o'clock service and confess that they were in need of some help because they found themselves slipping into this, this plague of, of binging and purging eating disorders. And this has been a long-held secret. I was the first person that this, this individual told about this problem. And it only surfaced because this person felt like they could be accepted and they were willing to risk and be open and honest about a devastating problem in their life. Isn't that wonderful? Are you going to be open and honest in an environment where you don't feel accepted? Where you feel like you're going to be judged and condemned and put down? When people are going to look down and say, oh, oh, I don't associate with that person. They have that problem. No. But you're going to be open and honest in an environment where you're what? Accepted. Where you're accepted and you feel it. Openness and honesty. The second mark of a grace-filled church. What's the third mark of a grace-filled church? Do you remember? Giving and serving. Oh, yeah, giving and serving. People are so, their needs are so well and so fully met in Christ that they're freed up to go meet needs in other people's lives. They're free to give themselves away. All the energy that they've been devoting to getting their needs met. Have you ever heard this? Maybe you've said it. Well, you're not meeting my needs. You go to many church and they say, well, my needs just aren't being met there. Ha, it drives me crazy when I hear that. I want to say, well, go meet some needs. Go get freed up. Come to grips with the reality that you're accepted. So you can go minister. So you can go give yourself away. third great mark of a grace-filled church is that the people are giving and serving. Excuse me. Is it okay if I walk around like this? I like being among them. I always hated being up there because I always felt distant and, you know, and I'm way up above you guys. And, and I know back there now some of you probably can't see me too well if I wish I was up on the platform, but I like just kind of wandering around looking at people and chatting. You know, folks. Just don't look at us. <laughs> Just don't look at us. Just don't look at us. <laughs> I get a little too close, huh? You're accepted. I, I accept you. I want you to feel accepted by me, Danny. Accept you. Just keep your distance. Just keep my distance. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the fourth mark of a grace-filled church this morning. And, you know, this is just as significant, just as important. And really, it's kind of the fruit of all the others that you have in a, in a gracious church the exercising of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that is always an issue uh, that people love to talk about, love to, love to hear about, uh, the exercising of the gifts of the Spirit. What are the gifts of the Spirit? Very simply put, they are special enablements that God gives to His people. Special spiritual abilities. And for the, he gives them for the purpose of, guess what? For meeting needs. For building up the church. For building up the body of Christ. They come as a result of God's grace. We're going to look at three passages real quickly this morning and talk some about them. And I have a number of remarks to make, so you'll have to just kind of come along with me. Turn to Romans, the 12th chapter. Some have expressed some frustration, uh, either to me personally or to others, that uh, I keep repeating myself, that I'm being uh, redundant. And I would encourage you, if you find yourself in that place and if you find yourself uh, becoming frustrated with me at my repetitious manner of late, uh, I need to have you to sit back and say, wait a minute, I'm accepted and I accept him. We are talking about a worthy subject, grace. And it's a subject that we cannot talk about enough. It's a subject that we cannot understand enough. It's a subject that we cannot study enough. And if any church is to become a gracious church, 
that topic ought to be a topic of conversation regularly. We need to be reinforcing it, understanding it from every possible angle we can. I am committed to us as a congregation becoming more and more and more gracious as a congregation. We will become a gracious church, even if it kills me. <laughs> I'm reminded of the story, many of you probably heard this, of the pastor who was called to his new church, and he goes in and he preaches this wonderful sermon, and the people love it, and they, on the way out they all sh- shake his hand and congratulate him and welcome him to the church. second week he goes in and preaches his message, but it's the same message. And the people sit there and listen patiently, and they think, hmm, well, maybe he doesn't remember. He preached this last week. <laughs> and so they sit very patiently, very contentedly, uh, and they accept it. And then the third week, he comes back and he preaches the same sermon. Well, this time, the elders deputize a number of people, and they go to the pastor, and they confront him, and they say, Pastor, we appreciate you coming to our church. We appreciate you being our pastor. Uh, we appreciate the wonderful words you bring to us, but... He preached the the same sermon three times in a row, three weekends in a row to us. And the pastor says, you're right. He says, when you get it right and you start doing it, then I'll preach a new sermon. (laughs) A lot of truth in that, isn't there? Yeah. And there's so much in the scriptures, there's so much, but it's all really the same, isn't it? And we really need to let the essential message break through to us and set us free. We really need that. And so I'm going to be somewhat redundant. Hopefully uh, it'll help. And if you find yourself being frustrated, then maybe you need to be a person who needs to let grace have access to your life. Be patient. Let God minister to you. Okay? Now, it's in the 12th chapter we have one of Paul's discussions of spiritual gifts. These special spiritual abilities that he gives to the church for the building up of the church. Now, there's another discussion. We'll look at it briefly in 1 Corinthians and then one more in Ephesians. And these are not, in my mind, exhaustive studies or exhaustive lists of these very special enablements that God gives to his church. They're just representative. They give us uh, examples. They give us some insight and understanding of what gifts are like and what purposes they serve. But here in the 12th chapter, he tells us in verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. So there's a warning against being prideful. And then he's going to launch into a little discussion of gifts. And sometimes people have a, a tendency to look at themselves and to feel a little prideful about how maybe God has gifted them or the position that he's given them. And so Paul warns us against that. He says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So, in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So, very briefly, he gives us the analogy of the human body with all the parts that go to make up the human body, and all the parts really belong to all the other parts, don't they? They're all interconnected, they're all interdependent, and the kidneys and the heart and the lungs and the liver and the, the pancreas and the arms and the feet and the legs, they're all really dependent on one another, aren't they? And yet they all go to make up the one body, but they're all distinct and they all have particular functions, but those particular functions all focus to the overall functioning of the whole unit. Do you see that? Does that make sense to you? And so he uses that analogy to describe the church, the body of Christ, one unit. And God has made the unit up, the body up, of many parts. We are all parts of the body of Christ. Some of us are ears. Some of us are noses. Some of us are kidneys. Some of us are thumbs. Some of us are big toes. It's important to be a big toe, by the way. Just as you need the big toe in the, in, the, in the human body, if you didn't have a big toe, you couldn't do this. You'd have trouble running and walking and balancing if you didn't have a big toe. And you may view yourself in the body of Christ as not being very significant. You may think, well, I'm just a big toe. You're very, very important to the body of Christ. For without you, the body of Christ is disabled. 
and is hobbled. You see that? And so he gives us this analogy to help us understand what the church is. The church is a, is a living organism. It's the body of Christ made up of many members. And each member has a specific function. And this function falls into the area of the gifting. And he's going to talk about this here. He says, verse 6, we have different gifts. We're not all having the same gift. Now, in a congregation as large as ours, certainly, uh, the four or 5,000 people that come to Hope Chapel, uh, we have lots of overlap of gifts. There's lots of people who have the same kinds of gifts, maybe not in the same measure. We have lots of prophets, we have lots of evangelists, lots of teachers, lots of pastors. We have lots of people with gifts of helps and mercy, lots of administrators. We have lots of people with the same kinds of gifts. But essentially, when you think about it, we all have our own individual gifts, and God has gifted us differently. He says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Now, you may have the same gift as somebody else. Maybe you're gifted as an evangelist. But according to the grace given you, that gift may manifest itself in a different manner or a different uh, setting than does someone else's gift. Take, for example, Billy Graham. He has the gift of evangelism. He can preach. He can preach to multitudes of people. And multitudes of people give their life to Christ. God uses him powerfully uh, as an evangelist. Now, you may be gifted as an evangelist also, but the very thought of you having to stand up in front of a huge group of people and to preach to them terrifies you, and so you think, oh, no, I couldn't do that. And so you quench your gift. Well, quite possibly, you may have the gift of evangelism, but evangelism on a one-on-one basis. You can lead people to Christ one-on-one very effectively. Or maybe you can evangelize children very effectively. But the gift is given according to the grace that God has given you, the measure of grace he's given you, and it may not be the same measure of grace as somebody else has. The gift may be the same, but it may operate in a different manner than does your gift. So you can rest in that knowledge. I was remembering about a conversation I had with one of my uh, professors when I went to school. He had a friend by the name of um, uh, Bill Bright, who, as many of you probably know, started a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Big, big ministry, and Bill Bright has a gift of evangelism. And uh, my professor was telling me about an interaction they had one time, and he was just astounded at how this man's gift operated, that uh, he has this tremendous gift to lead people to Christ one-on-one, anywhere. And he was describing to me one situation where he, where he had Bill accompany him to uh, see another man... Uh, downtown Los Angeles, uh, they had a, an appointment to meet, and they were going to talk about the Lord, and this man was considering giving his life to Christ, and so um, he had Bill Bright accompany him. Well, the guy apparently wasn't there, missed the appointment or something, and so they were leaving his office, and they were, they were in one of these big old office buildings downtown, you know, with us skyscrapers, and they were in the elevator, and they're going down. The elevator stopped at another floor, and another man got on, unknown to these two. Between the time when that, ele- when that man got on the elevator and the elevator reached the ground floor, Bill Bright had led this stranger to Christ. I would say that's the gift of evangelism. <laughs> Most of us would stand there and we would think, we'd have these thoughts, say something. No way. No way am I going to say, what's that guy going to think? Remember, you're accepted. doesn't matter what he thinks. Oh yeah, that's right. Now say something. <laughs> Can you relate to that? But here's a guy who has a gift. And he has no problem with launching out, striking up a conversation, turning the conversation around to the Lord, and leading this guy to Christ. And by the time they get to the ground floor and the elevator door opens, this guy's a believer. Can you imagine? He never had any thought of that getting on that elevator. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? My wife has the gift of evangelism. And it was most pronounced, most prominent, when she was working as a flight attendant with American Airlines. And uh, she, is, she has told me many a story. Uh, people would come on the plane, you know, and how uh, certainly some men would flirt with the flight attendants and, and so forth. And uh, she would always have a wonderful comeback to them whenever they would do that. 
And she recounted to me many occasions on which she would ask a gentleman, she'd say, excuse me, but do you know Jesus Christ? You know, here this guy's trying to make it with her, and she's laying the Lord on him. And uh, totally unexpected. God bless her. She, she has had businessmen on their knees in the aisle on an airplane praying the sinner's prayer. That's the gift of evangelism. You see, on a one-on-one basis. Now, you ask her to stand up here and preach the gospel, she says, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm not even showing up. And so you see that God gives gifts according to the measure of the grace that he gives us and for specific purposes, and it all ultimately points to the building up of the church, the building up of the kingdom of God. Now, he goes on here and he says, we have these different gifts. He says, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. In other words, don't inhibit these people. If they're gifted in this area, encourage them. Let them operate in their gifts. In fact, I'm finding that you have to give people permission to do these things. Do you know that? It's astounding to me. It should go as a foregone conclusion that it's okay to serve. It's okay to minister, but people are waiting for permission. It's okay to go do that. And people come along and they say, you know, I want to know what my gifts are. We have, I think we get the cart before the horse. We want to, we want to wear these nice labels, and we're not going to do anything until we get the label. Well, I am an evangelist. I'm a server. I'm a... You know, all this. And I think what we need to do, when people come to me and they say, what are my gifts? I want to find out what my spiritual gifts are. I say to them, what do you like to do best? Now, first of all, you have to make sure they're a Christian. <laughs> you see. <laughs> yeah, you got to always qualify, too, I'm finding. You know, you, I assume a lot of things, and assuming gets me in trouble. And so you got to qualify, make sure they're Christian. And then you say, what do you like to do? What, what, what really, what are you good at? And they tell you, and they say, well, go start doing that in the church. Start doing that in the body of Christ. They say, well, what's my gift? Well, I don't know, but you'll find out what your gift is when you start serving. Does that make sense? Sure. And so you all have permission to start serving. And if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are in the midst of the serving, just follow a trailhead being something you like to do that's okay to do. You know what I'm saying? It's proper and orderly. Not improper. I know that I can be misunderstood. Now he goes on and he says, If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do so cheerfully. So we have an example of gifts. Over in 1 Corinthians, look there with me, chapter 12. <coughs> now actually there's three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, that are devoted in in the, the letter to the Corinthian church uh, to spiritual gifts. We're not going to read all three chapters. I, if you've not read them yourself and studied them, I encourage you to do so. But we're just going to look at a portion of chapter 12. Beginning in verse 4, Paul has this discussion there on spiritual gifts. And he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. In verse 7, he says, Now to each one, meaning members of the church, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? The common good. Is the manifestation of the Spirit given to puff us up? To make us look good? To gratify our own ego needs? To express our own neuroses? No. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each member of the church for the common good. That's got to be a guiding principle when we think about spiritual gifts in the church. And it will be in a gracious church. Verse 8 says, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. So in a setting where there's a need for wisdom, a word of wisdom, God has gifted somebody, and that person can come when they have visibility of a need, and they can come and they can bring wisdom to bear in that particular need. And all of us certainly need wisdom, don't we? You know what wisdom is? That's nothing more than practical advice on how to live your life how to make decisions. But God has, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask, it will be given. But he's given some people a very special gift to impart wisdom. But they can't impart it and they can't operate in that gift unless what? Unless the congregation is open and honest and expressing a need for wisdom in certain areas. He goes on and he says the same thing about 
uh, God has given to another the message of knowledge. There's a gift of knowledge um, by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, the ability to speak in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of these tongues. Verse 11, all these, all these gifts, all these special enablements are the work of one and the same Spirit. So it's God's Spirit working in the believers. And He, meaning God's Spirit, gives them to each one just as He determines. That's very important. God distributes the gifts just as He determines. You know, when you're born, before you're born, do you sign in for all of the talents and abilities that you want? And then when you're born, they're given to you? No, they're assigned to you, aren't they? You, you have stamped into you a personality. That personality will never change. It'll be sanctified when you become a believer. But that's your personality. And there are certain gifts and abilities and talents that God builds into you as a human being right from conception. Now, there's another thing called temperament. That can change. That's how you learn to express your personality. Some people have a good temperament. Some people have not so good temperament. That can change. That can be adjusted. But it's your personality, and it's the gifts and the abilities that God stamps into you. <laughs> and he gives them to you. You don't sign up for them. You don't say, well, I'll choose that one and that one and that one. They're given to you. And so also aren't the gifts given to you. We don't become a Christian and say, oh, well, let's see. I think I want to be a this and a this and a this. Sometimes we act that way. Rather than growing in grace, learning to be open and honest, and stepping out to learn how to serve and to give, and then in that kind of environment, we begin to discover our gifts. Just in the context of serving. I'm always amazed and amused and frustrated, quite frankly, and I know many pastors are, when there's a, a great hue and cry for uh, spiritual gifts to be manifested in the church. And beloved, we have a lot of people exercising spiritual gifts in our church. Not always the kind of spiritual gifts that some want to see. You know, some want to always be hearing tongues and so forth going on. And while that's legitimate, I think that there's sometimes it's a little overbalanced, uh, the cry for those things. But you see, there's always this tension, this pressure to have more teaching on spiritual gifts, to have more seminars. Greg Colkin and I were talking about a, a workshop on spiritual gifts and life in the Spirit. And, you know, it dawned on me. You can have all the workshops you want in the world. You can have all the classes and all the teaching on spiritual gifts you want in the world. You can go to all the seminars. But you know what? If you have not grace, if you're not growing in grace, if you're not learning to be open and honest, if you're not a person who's learning to give and to serve, you know what? All those classes and seminars and teachings are going to be just words. They're not going to produce any fruit at all. They're going to fall on deaf ears. You can have all the programs in the world to pump up and to crank up enthusiasm for spiritual gifts. But if you have not a gracious church, you will not have the exercise of spiritual gifts according to God's design. If there is no grace in the church, there will be no gifts visible. The gifts won't emerge and they won't flourish. And if perchance they do emerge... They will be abused, and they will not minister grace to people. Think with me. You've got grace. You've got a gracious church. In a gracious church, the people are accepted. They're accepted, and they're accepting. And out of that springs those two other wings of openness and honesty and giving and serving. And when you have openness and honesty in an environment like that, and you have people who are giving and serving, those two things dovetail, and you have the emergence of spiritual gifts. And when you have the emergence of spiritual gifts in that kind of environment, you have the building up of the body. And wherever you have the building up of the body, you know what the result of that is? More grace. And wherever you have more grace, what do you have? You have more, what? 
acceptance. And wherever you have more acceptance, you have what? More openness and honesty. And you have more giving and serving. Where you have more openness and honesty and more giving and serving, you have what? More gifts emerging. And where you have more gifts emerging, what do you have then? You have more building up of the body. And we have more building up of the body, then what do you have? More grace. And with more grace, what do you get? More acceptance. And with more acceptance, what do you get? Isn't that exciting? Isn't God's design perfect? <coughs> Absolutely. The whole question and issue for each one of us is this. Do I believe God? Do I really believe that I am accepted? Am I willing to step out and grow in grace? It's got to start with each one of us, doesn't it? If you want to experience the gifts of the Spirit in your life, if you want to see the reality, if you want to find where you fit, you've got to begin to grow in grace. There is no other way. Otherwise, it's all going to be artificial. And it's not going to be fulfilling. There's not going to be any joy and excitement and experience the great, mighty power and grace of God in your life. Unless you're growing in grace. Look at Ephesians. Well, let me say one more thing about this passage in, in Corinthians. Paul, Paul goes at great length in this chapter 12 and then certainly in chapter 14 to describe one particular gift and its use and abuse. You know what that gift is? Tongues. Whenever you have a, a discussion of spiritual gifts, there is always this incredible attention drawn to that one gift, the gift tongues. And the only reason I'm drawing attention to it is because I know it's going to be a matter of conversation and I want to short-circuit some of the stuff that's going to be talked about. Tongues always manages to be a divisive element in a church. The ones that speak in tongues tell the others they got to speak in tongues. If you're not speaking in tongues, somehow you're a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian. Beloved, that is not true. The scriptures are very clear on that. Paul has already told us that the Spirit gives the gifts to those he determines, as he determines. And later on, as a matter of fact, at the end of that 12th chapter, he asks these kinds of rhetorical questions, the answers or the implicating that no. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? The idea is no, not are all apostles, not are all prophets. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. And so in your conversations, and especially in many church, if you are pressing for everybody to speak in tongues, or that everybody has to pray in tongues, then please back off. I do not believe that, I do not teach that, and I don't want you teaching it. Now I, quite frankly, agree with your position to disagree with me. But don't teach that position in this church. Am I heard? This is really important, beloved. Because we have pockets of division. And that ought not to be. We have people doing their own thing, teaching what I term as Christian mythology, and not going to the Word and saying, what does the Word clearly say? What does Paul set forth for us doctrinally that we should know what the truth is? So please, you have a right to disagree. And if you have a problem you want to come talk about it, I'll be more than happy to talk with you about it. We'll sit down and we'll pour over the scriptures together. But in a public forum, in this fellowship, what I'm teaching and what I believe, what I believe God has given me to teach is that not everybody's going to talk in a tongue and not everybody is going to be a prophet, not everybody's going to be an evangelist. God gives the gifts as he determines. It's very simple. Is that okay for me to say? I hope so. And if you're offended, please don't be offended. 
I apologize to you if you're offended. That's not my, that's not my intent and my purpose. My intent and purpose is to teach you clearly what the Scriptures say so that we can be all of one mind and one spirit. And we can all be moving in the same direction together. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. Praise God. All right. Now turn with me to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And here is the third major discussion by Paul on spiritual gifts. And he describes five particular gifts here uh, that uh, are important for us to understand. Verse 11, he says, He, it was he, meaning Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So he's equipped some people with these particular gifts, and he goes on to say, uh, to prepare God's people for the work of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so we see the three major uh, descriptions, or the three major discourses by Paul on gifts. There are some minor uh, passages that allude to other gifts. There's a gift of celibacy. Did you know that? A spiritual gift, Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, when he's talking about sexual issues in the church at Corinth. And certainly that church needed to have that ad- ad- issue addressed. And Paul's way of dealing with this is, well, I wish you were all gifted like I was. I wish you were all celibate. That would solve the problem in that particular church. There's a gift of missionary. Some of you have that gift, but it has not yet surfaced. There's a gift of martyrdom. That's a one-time gift. (laughs) That surfaces just when you need it. (laughs) But there's a spiritual gift of martyrdom, a special spiritual enablement uh, to allow you to go home uh, in a very, very tense circumstance. And you know what? In every situation, if you read the lives of martyrs, men and women who have been martyred for the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ, you find that that really does result in the building up of the church. You think initially, what a waste. Here was a person who had given their life. They were doing all this work, and now it's all down the tubes. No, that's only paved the way for a great awakening in that culture. And we have a classic example in the person of Saul of Tarsus. As we look at the work of grace, God's grace, not only does he give us gifts by grace, but he awakens those gifts in us by his grace. Now, he gives the gifts. We've already seen in, in uh, Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians, uh, the word gave is there prominent. God gives. The Spirit has given uh, according to the measure of grace given us. So the gifts are given, and they're given by grace. They're not something we earn, deserve, that we can buy you remember in the 8th chapter of Acts when Simon uh, the magician tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit? He tried to buy the Holy Spirit and all the power that went with him. And Peter says, ah, uh, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. He's a gift. And so aren't the gifts of the Spirit. You can't buy them, you can't earn them, we don't deserve them. God sovereignly gives them to us and plants them in our life. Um, and so the grace, the gifts are, are given through God's grace And secondly, and this I think is very interesting, the gifts are awakened in us through God's grace. Now let me explain to you what I mean. Let's use Paul as an example. Before he became Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a militant Jew, uh, antagonistic to the church to the max. If you read the account in the book of Acts, you know this. Until he meets grace... Now, do you remember the very first place that God's grace met him? It was at the assassination. It was at the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, on the surface of it, here's Stephen, mighty in the word, (coughs) preaching powerfully, refuting an evangelist, an apologist for the gospel in Jerusalem. Why would God let him be stoned to death? You'd think that God would use this man and, and keep using him. Well, God did use him. And he used his martyrdom. Because as Stephen was being stoned, Saul of Tarsus was standing there. And I'll bet you that etched in his memory was Stephen's face looking up towards heaven, glowing as the stones were raining down on him. 
Saul would never forget the look on that face. And that martyrdom, that gift of martyrdom that was given to Stephen, paved the way for Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle. Awesome, huh? And you see it when you read the lives of other people who have been martyred. Behind them come waves of missionaries. And not only that, but the people, the very people who martyred them often turn out to become Christians. And they will tell you almost to, a, to the person, I will never forget how that person died. There was something different about him. I could never erase the memory of that person from my memory. Astounding, huh? So here's Saul of Tarsus. Would you agree with me that Saul was a very gifted man, a very able man, a very talented man, was he? Certainly, as a Jew. Absolutely. He was eloquent of speech. He was learned in the law. He certainly had tremendous influence and abilities and power. But you know what? Those were not gifts. Though he was a gifted man, they were not gifts of the Holy Spirit because he had not yet met the Holy Spirit until the road to Damascus. Chapter 9, book of Acts. He had a powerful encounter. You ever read that? Wonderful, huh? You know, there's a phenomenon that people like to describe as slain in the spirit. I think there are only a few real genuine exhibitions of that. And there's one right there in the book of Acts, in the ninth chapter, when Paul encounters the the risen Lord, and he literally is slain in the spirit. He's knocked flat. And he comes up blind. And after three days, when he is converted, he's a changed man. And all of those natural and abilities and talents that were resident in him as a non-believer now are transformed as he is transformed and they are awakened in him, I think, as gifts and abilities to serve the body. Because prior to that, all of those talents and abilities, great as they were, served only to what? Destroy the church, not to build the church up. And now God transforms this man and all of the things in him are transformed and they are focused now on the building up of the church. The very first visibility we have of any kind of a spiritual gift, I think, in the 20th through the 22nd verses of that ninth chapter, I think give visibility of his gifting as an evangelist because he preaches powerfully right there in the synagogue in Damascus and quiets all the Jews. They can't refute him. He makes a strong defense for the gospel, and for Christ. But it's many, many more years before the other gifts in him are awakened and come to the surface. It's many, many more years before Paul actually begins to become, in evidence, the reality of being the apostle of grace to the Gentiles. So you become a Christian. And maybe initially, one or two gifts, something begins to surface, and you begin to function. And later on in your experience as a Christian, in your life as a Christian, other things begin to happen. Other things begin to surface. Now this has been called by some, these secondary experiences, getting the baptism. I think that's a misnomer. If you're going to be strict and you're going to interpret the scriptures as they're written, then you have to read the baptism of the Holy Spirit as being the initial experience with God baptizing you or initiating you into the body of Christ. Because that's what baptism means. It means initiation into. You're baptized into the body of Christ. You're made part of the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And those secondary experiences later on in your life, I think, are a function certainly of God's grace, but God, as you are growing in grace, is awakening in you the gifts that have been in you all along. But he's awakening them now. That makes very real sense to me. Because Paul certainly wasn't everything that he could be initially, was he? It was only after God's grace had penetrated his mind and had mastered his heart, only after then did he in fact become the apostle to the Gentiles. Only then uh, was the gift of apostle evident. Only then was his great gift of, of, of teaching evident. Only then, uh, probably, did he receive and begin to manifest the gift of, of tongues and prophecy, some of the other things. And so I think that for us, in our experience, 
as we learn to grow in grace, we can be confident that God's grace will awaken in us the gifts that he has already given us by grace. They may not all emerge initially, but as we grow and mature as Christians, then I think, and I believe this with all my heart, then those gifts that are in us in potential will begin to come to the surface, will be awakened. But if there's no grace, if there's no gracious community and environment, beloved, those gifts will not be awakened and will be constantly frustrated, wondering why. It only happened in the context of us growing in grace. That's what happens in an individual. That's how grace works in the individual. And just as grace awakens gifts in the individual, as more individuals are awakened this way, the congregation is awakened. And you've got gifts being manifested all over the place, popping up all over the place in a gracious church. And again, people who are so used to striving after their own little kingdom and their own getting their own needs met are now all of a sudden, because they're, they're reaching out and serving other people, they're beginning to discover how God has gifted them. They may never have had a name for this thing that they do. But they've just been faithfully serving. And then someone comes along and says, oh, guess what? I think you have the gift of. And they go, oh, is that what that is? You see, they've been doing it all along because they've been in the context of growing in grace. When you've got people growing in grace, the gifts of the Spirit must be in evidence. They will be in evidence. And you don't have to artificially stimulate them. It works just like that. That's how God's system is. Does that make sense? Can you relate to that? I hope so. Believe me. <laughs> very, very important. And sometimes we think, well, if I give myself away, I, I'll lose myself. I'll, I'll, I'll somehow be diminished. I, I can't give my... I've got to preserve... No, no, no. The Bible says if you give yourself away, God gives you more. You give yourself away, you get more to give away. You don't lose yourself. You only end up growing. Think about love. Love, for it to truly be love, must be what? Given away. If you don't give it away, it's not love. I mean, I can tell you all day long, I love you. But unless I demonstrate it and give that love away to you, it doesn't mean a thing. Just noise, huh? Just empty words. But the more I love you, the more God says he'll give me more love to give to you. The more I give away, the more I get. If I'm faithful with a little bit, I'll get more. You see the incentive that God builds into us to do more giving and more serving and not worry about what I'm going to get out of it? The guarantee is already there. Give and it shall be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. You're going to have more to give away than you know what to do with. And so many of us are so impoverished spiritually. We're holding on to the little bit we got and we're trying to get some more from other people. What a wonderful thing it would be if we began to grow in grace and got freed up just to begin to give away the little bit we got. And the more we learn to give it away, the more God pours into us and we go, whoa. And many of you experience that just financially. You got this little bit of money and you're hoarding it and thinking, this is all I got. If I give this away, I won't have anything else. But some of you are learning, well, I'm going to trust God. I see a need. He's shown me that need. I'm going to go meet that need, and I'm going to trust him. And sure enough, man, God does something and pours back into you and meets your financial need. He works that way. He promises to do it. So God's gifts are given to us by his grace. They are awakened in us by his grace as we grow. And thirdly, they are the very expression of his grace to us. God's gifts are love gifts to us. And they're love gifts through us to each other. You cannot separate the gifts of the Holy Spirit from love. In fact, in every discussion that we've looked at, in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, the whole 13th chapter is devoted to the topic of love. And again, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, you have Paul including there also a discussion of love. He attaches it right there to a discussion of gifts. You cannot separate gifts from love. Why? Because they are love gifts. And love, by its very nature, gives itself away. Gifts are designed by God to be given away. They are, by nature, the expression of His grace. 
that are not only given to us by grace, they're not only awakened in us by grace, they are his expression of grace. Jesus says that a loving and good and gracious father gives good gifts to his children, right? And if you're a father, you know what I'm talking about. You long to give good gifts to your children. We just had this Christmas weekend here, and uh, if you're a father and you have children, you wanted to give good gifts to your children. If your children wanted something nice, you didn't give them something lousy. You wanted to give them something nice, and God does that for us. And he gives them to us so that we can give them away to each other. We can express love to each other. There's no better way for me to express love than to recognize a need in your life and know that I have the ability to meet that need and go meet it. Can you see that? And each one of us, beloved, have God built in abilities in our life to meet needs in our congregation and in the people outside the congregation for the building up of the church. And the issue is not for us to go search and find out what our label is. The issue is for us to grow in grace and begin to serve. And as we begin to serve, we're going to find out what our label is. Does that help? Remember, we've got to evaluate ourselves and the church. We've got to always say, am I a gracious person? Am I growing in grace? And then secondarily, is our church a gracious church? Are we as a congregation growing in grace or not? Very, very important. Keep those four marks in your mind. Accepted and accepting, open and honest, giving and serving, exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those four elements are present in a church. You have a gracious body of believers. Now, next time we talk, we're going to talk about the blocks to grace in the church. And those are manifold, believe me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace to us. We worship you this morning, Lord. We thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We thank you for Jesus. Father, as we have just concluded Christmas time, where we've exchanged gifts, how apropos it has been for us to be talking about your gifts to us. Lord, as we've expressed love to each other by sharing gifts, you have expressed your love to us not only by accepting us, but also giving us life and giving us an abundance of very special gifts. Lord, we're not only accepted, but we're valuable. Each one of us have a very integral role to play in your body. Free us, O Lord, I pray, by your grace. Cause us to grow in grace. Cause us to believe you and trust you so that, in fact, we can begin to fulfill the great commission that you've called each one of us to. You're our great God. We thank you that you're our God. And we thank you that you hold on to us. Slide how you keep us close to you, how you never let us go, how you never forsake us. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning. And we recommit ourselves to you and to your purposes for our life and for your kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord.